You're listening to Pros Like Us, brought to you by NFL Draft Blitz. And now, without any further ado, here's Alex and Lou. That's right, gang. We are back and better than last week. We hope it is week 15 of the regular season. Uh, Some fantasy leagues playoffs begin this week. We're going to have some Jags talk, a player interview littered in with some Bills and Cardinals and Rams and Packers. Oh my. And of course, the COVID spike. But first, we're going to start right off the top with our Jags reporter. Joining us now, Jags beat reporter and publisher of Jaguar Report, John Shipley. Welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you guys for having me on. John, well, most of the news or noise coming out of Jacksonville is off-field stuff, and it seems like it's been like that all summer and the whole season, and it's not good news, right? I mean, tension's been ratcheted up by the coach, it seems like. What is the mood in the building right now? I think, you know, definitely – you know, from at least talking to people, just simply seeing how people are acting, you know, when they're speaking in public and watching them on Sundays, it really seems to me like a team that's walking on eggshells, you know, a team that's, you know, any confidence that it might have had, if it had any, is shot at this point, you know, and they're terribly afraid of making a critical mistake, you know, they're afraid of, you know, being the next person to fall under the crosshair. So I just think it's, you know, an environment right now that, you know, it's, you know, kind of hard to be in, really. You know, the Jaguars have said, you know, over and over again how, you know, strong they believe in their locker room, despite, you know, how badly the season has gone. But it isn't really the locker room, you know, that's the issue. It's, you know, a head coach who, you know, is experiencing losing for the first time, you know, in his coaching career. And he's experienced it, you know, in bunches. They have two different five-game losing streaks this year. I don't believe Meyer ever had a five-game losing streak at any point, you know, in his career before this year. And he's now done it twice. You know, they're 2-11. They've become, in my opinion, the punchline of the NFL. In the three seasons I've covered them, they've been bad, but they've never been, you know, the punchline of every, you know, daily NFL show. You know, sites like the Washington Post and New York Times are even, you know, chipping away at them. So I I, I think it's, you know, an environment that's just, you know, kind of come undone. Well, from here, it certainly does seem dysfunctional. Have you had any, you know, what's like the fan reaction locally? I mean, what, what are they saying? At the end of his tenure, Tom Coughlin had more supporters than Urban Meyer does right now, at least among the fan base. I think it's just hard to find, you know, an Urban Meyer fan, you know, among the fan base because, I mean, you add up all the losses. You add up the, you know, infuriating things like not playing rookies, not being active in free agency, doing things like uh, yesterday saying Andre Sisko has been playing a bit more when, you know, he logged a total of zero snaps on defense. And then, of course, the James Robinson fiasco. I think when you add all of those things up, I think it just paints a very grim picture in terms of fan support. And this was a guy who had the fan base, you know, like putty in his hands when he was first hired and all through the offseason. But then once the real football game started, you know, really, I point to once the preseason started and the Cleveland Browns, you know, backup players punched in the Jaguars starters in the mouth. I think things have just gone steadily downhill since then. And to me, it's hard to find an Urban Meyer supporter among the fan base. Well, I don't know if he thrives on tension, but it seems to follow him wherever he goes. Do you get the sense like he's trying to get fired? I'm not sure if I get that sense. 
I mean, it, in one way, you know, it would make sense. You know, a guy who realizes he's in over his head, you know, getting fired would mean, you know, he gets the rest of his contract, etc. I don't think Meyer, you know, somebody who is, you know, this kind of disgusted by being a failure and by losing, I don't think it's his in his DNA. I, I think he badly wants to fix it. I just think he has no idea how to actually do it. All right, let's focus on Trevor Lawrence. Uh, four INTs all in the second half against the Titans. Three of them were his fault, not the first one. Has Lawrence's play regressed as we have gotten to the second part of the season? Because it sure seems that way. What's your take? I'm not sure if regression is right the right way i think his development has been paused in the sense that he hasn't taken that next step after that terrific run that he had at the end of the first half of the season i think you can directly correlate that with the jaguars offense coming apart since the bye week you know largely as a result of james robinson's injury and other injuries to the offense but i still think lawrence has honestly shown things i know you know it sounds you know like Per person in the, the cuckoo house when you're saying, hey, this quarterback with nine touchdowns and 14 interceptions is actually decent. But when I watch Lawrence, you know, when I go through the tape, I'm seeing a quarterback who is a victim of his surroundings as opposed to somebody who's contributing to that surrounding. I mean, I believe he started, you know, 14 of 16 against the Titans before things started going downhill as the Jaguars continued to air it out and air it out and air it out. So it was a tale of really two halves. And I think he's still a guy who he has shown everything that you want in a quarterback prospect from, you know, being able to make the throws, being able to navigate the pocket and make plays out of structure. Uh, His leadership on and off the field, in my opinion, has improved by leaps and bounds since week one so i think even if the numbers aren't there and it has indeed been a statistical regression i still think that what they're getting out of lawrence if you put him in any other situation i believe if trevor lawrence was in new england you know he's getting offensive player of the year votes oh absolutely no no questions asked i mean jacksonville just doesn't have the pieces that are surrounding trevor lawrence lawrence has developed into a real leader off the field. I mean, he has shown maturity beyond his years. The way he defended James Robinson, the way he went out there to the media saying that he's their best player and he should be on the field. Have you been impressed uh, with that aspect of the game? Because for a rookie quarterback, I mean, that's just as important. Oh, 100%. I really think the most important thing that has happened to Lawrence, you know, in this mess of a rookie season and in the Jaguars year has been you know during the James Robinson you know mishap and fiasco uh Lawrence you know was asked about in his weekly press conference and Lawrence is rarely you know the kind of person to give kind of a firm answer and kind of shake the boat in any way you know he's a really laid-back kind of guy you know he's going to do what's asked of him but I mean he said clearly you know that he voiced his opinion that he wants Robinson on the field and that Robinson's one of the best players uh you know obviously the reports came out that Lawrence even said during the game against the Rams hey why isn't Robinson on the field and I don't think that's something you would have saw from him in the first few weeks of the season. I know that's not a knock on him. That's, you know, you don't expect any rookie quarterback to try to be calling the shots, you know, within their first few games. But I think just seeing him kind of, you know, take the cachet that comes with being the franchise quarterback and actually wielding that power and utilizing it, I think is a good sign for the Jaguars. It just seems like James Robinson is not one of Urban Meyer's guys. And that's just the feeling that you get because... I mean, he fumbled the ball a couple of times in two games, and then he was benched. And then Carlos Hyde also fumbled the ball, but he went out there and continued to get the carries. So what the hell is going on? I mean, 
How do you give your best player on this team, period, forget about offense or defense, Robinson is their best player. How does he get six carries against the Titans when you're down 10 to 0 at the end of the third quarter? How does that happen? Is James Robinson in the doghouse and how does he feel about it? I think you point to a lot of things that would indicate the Jaguars and Urban Meyer and Trent Bulky aren't as high on James Robinson as they should be. You know, obviously the signing Carlos had to begin with, the drafting of Travis Etienne. And, you know, really how they've kind of utilized Robinson at different points throughout the season. I thought the uh, Falcons game and the Los Angeles Rams game were much, much more egregious in terms of not utilizing Robinson. Because, I mean, in the Falcons game, you know, he fumbled, came off the field, and then they finally get in the red zone. One of, I think, like, it was like four red zone trips they had had in the last three games, and he's not on the field. And then the third string running back drops a pass that, you know, very likely could have been a touchdown or at the very least down at the one-yard line. So I think cases like that are more egregious. I think this past game, I, I think the Jaguars just never had any ideal or thought of running the ball. I mean, you look at their snap counts, and their blocking tight ends barely played at all. Meanwhile, you know, they had all three, you know, Treadwell, Chanel, and Marvin Jones all play over 80% of the snaps. I think that was just a bad game plan by the Jaguars. But I think you've seen all year that, you know, they don't appreciate James Robinson for what he is. And it's hard for me to really, you know, think that a front office and a coaching staff can inspire confidence if they're missing something that's so clear in front of their eyes. Maybe we're just all overreacting and Urban is like this evil genius. And this is his crazy out of the box way of trying to weed a lot of people out of the organization. I mean, any chance of that? I say that sort of like half ass joking, but seriously, I mean, do you think there's a chance of that? I don't. I, I really think Meyer, this has been, you know, a season from hell for Meyer, both in terms of, you know, sitting at two and 11 you know, the worst record he's ever had and, you know, becoming really a punchline and laughing joke of the league, you know, both inside and outside of, you know, media circles. And then, I mean, just the simple fact that, you know, now they have leaks, you know, they, they have more leaks than the sinking boat at this point. And I, I think all of that is stuff that's kind of pushed Meyer to the brink. And I don't get the impression that any of this is something that he wants to be self-inflicted because I firmly believe his big issue was he didn't have enough you know, people and associates, especially in NFL circles, you know, NFL-minded people who he trusted. So I think just dwindling that number of people would only serve to hurt him. So you mentioned Andre Sisco and th that whole situation in the press conference. We've seen the clips, the tweets about the whole thing. For like the handful of people that didn't see it, John, I, I'm, I'm guessing you were there at the presser. Kind of lay that whole thing out and what, you know, what the reaction was in the room. Andre Sisco has been kind of a hot topic for Jaguars fans all season. You know, a third-round pick, uh, number 65 overall, and the Jaguars staff lauded him as a guy who, you know, could really come in and help them create turnovers and impact plays right away. And he's barely seen the field all season. So, you know, he's been a hot topic, and especially when you compare it to starting safety Andrew Winger, who kind of draws the ear of fans, you know, pretty often. And, you know, a lot of it deservedly. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Because he makes, you know, probably more mistakes than many of the other defenders that they have and more critical ones. It's been kind of a back and forth all season. You know, we've asked Meyer even dating back to, you know, week one and week two, you know, what does it have to take for Andre Cisco to be a starter? And it just has not happened. So I think at this point, you know, Cisco questions, it's, it's almost like beating a dead horse because, you know, we've asked over and over again, 
how can this guy who, you know, you picked in the third round, you picked to be a starter, how can he do anything other than just be a special teams player? And they haven't, you know, to this point, done anything to suggest, you know, they're going to change. Well, after he was playing zero snaps, was that kind of a trap question? Or do you just think that's just the way it worked out? No, I, I think he was being asked about uh, how rookie, you know, on if rookie is going to play more moving forward. And that was just him kind of being unaware. John, we've talked about Urban Meyer being, you know, the biggest disappointment for the Jaguars this year. Who is the one player on this team who has been your biggest disappointment? That's a tough one, just considering how many disappointments there are. I think Miles Jack has had a really down season, especially after he had the best season of his career last year. I, I think people early on were disappointed in Tyson Campbell, but he's really turned it on as, uh, as of late. So the two people I would really go to would be uh, Caleb Von Chason and Jawan Taylor. You know, two recent top picks, uh, Jawan Taylor, a second-round pick in, in 19, and Chason, a first-round pick in 2020. Chason has just one sack this year, and his last quarterback hit was in Week 5. That, to me, kind of tells you what the Jaguars see of him. They see him as... You know, kind of just your standard Sam linebacker who he's not going to be rushing the passer very much because they simply have other guys who are better than him at getting to the quarterback, you know, in Josh Allen and the Wants move. And then uh, Taylor, to me, his play, at least over the last month, has been benchable. I'm never a guy who quick to say, OK, this guy needs to be benched because I know there are so many factors that go into play, so many different outside and internal factors. But Taylor has been, you know, allowing pressure at a high rate, getting penalties at a high rate. He's not moving people in the run game. And this was a guy the Jaguars needed to take a step forward this year. I'd argue this has been his worst season. He's actually been on a downward trajectory since his rookie year, which I still consider to be his best year. We're going to ask you a question about the 2022 NFL draft. Which position do you believe is the biggest need for Jacksonville in next year's draft? I believe the receiver room obviously, you know, has to be upgraded. I don't know, like really looking at it, you know, how the room is composed today, if they have a starting receiver for next season on the roster right now. And, that, and that, that's not to say, you know, they should take a receiver, the number two and number three overall pick. But when just looking at the roster, you know, from top down on the depth chart, I'm not sure there's a position that's more void of talent right now than the receiver room. So you're not a big fan of LaVisca. I mean, he hasn't lived up to the hype out there and like to move him around, like to put him in the slot. You're not his biggest supporter right now. I, I was a giant LaVisca Chenault advocate entering the season. I really liked him coming out of the draft. And it's just this year, you know, they wasted half his season, like making him an X receiver win. That's just not his game at all. But then, I mean, just things like, you know, letting catchable balls go through his hands, running routes at the wrong depth. It's been kind of, a nightmarish season for him. And I mean, to this point in the year, he still, you know, doesn't have a touchdown catch. So it's, it's hard for to really, in my opinion, be confident about his projection moving forward. John, is there a storyline or something that you've observed that hasn't made it to the national media yet that you could share with us? I'm not sure if there's anything that hasn't, you know, kind of made it to the national media yet, just because, they're under, in my opinion, more of a microscope and more scrutiny than they've been in any you know year in the past, maybe in the franchise's history. So I'm not sure if there's anything that really hasn't gotten out, uh, you know, to the national media. But I will say that you know the the Jaguars they have a staff that you know is getting phone calls in terms of you know other jobs. Uh, Tosh Lapoy has been a guy that's been linked to Florida's coach staff and now also Oregon's coaching staff. He's a defensive line coach. Uh, tight ends coach Tyler Bowen who 
is seen both internally and externally as one of the better offensive coaches on the staff and somebody who Meyer really likes and who, who is somebody who I'm pretty sure that he would love to keep around. You know, he's been tied to the Virginia Tech offensive coordinator job. So I think those are some things that have kind of gone under the radar, just how much coaching staff turnover there might be. So if we're looking thing, you know, a little bit more on the positive note, then you're kind of going in that direction as far as the coaches he did hire. Since the season has started, can you point to something or some things that Coach Meyer has done that have worked out or have been positive at least? <laughs> Put me on the spot on that one. I, it's truly tough for me to find anything on the field that you know has been a positive development. I, I feel like the offense has gotten every player on the offense has gotten worse from you know week five this week six. I think the one thing would be that you know he's been open to kind of changing things in terms of scheme. You know they've incorporated a lot more RPOs, a lot more read options. They shifted the defense from you know really a high percentage of man coverage to zone coverage. So I, I would say that's been the biggest positive, but the negatives it, it they just outweigh it by so much. So if you're a fan, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, there are some season ticket holders. That's not the, you know, the hugest fan base out there, at least from our perspective. For those people that are diehards, I mean, can you give them some hope, John? Something to hold on to. I think that they've hit on the quarterback. I think even if, you know, they haven't, you know, exactly had, you know, the production that you would want out of a quarterback, you know, it's been nothing like Justin Herbert's season. Uh, last year, I, I, I still think that they hit on the quarterback and that if they can find a better support system for him and just a better ecosystem to really make him grow in, I think that would, you know, obviously open things up and help the Jaguars really explode in terms of their trajectory. All right. Very good. Once again, it's been Jags beat reporter and publisher of, of at Jaguar report. You can find his stuff there as well as on Twitter at underscore John underscore Shipley. It's been great, John. Uh, hope to talk to you soon and never a dull moment in Jacksonville. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. And I've really been wondering when uh, when the quiet season is going to happen. And it hasn't happened yet. Maybe year four. All right, man. We'll talk to you again soon. All right, thank you. COVID, a huge spike, biggest spike in the NFL, I mean, since I think the pandemic started. First two days of this week, I think they had over 75 positive tests, some prominent names out there, seven teams now into advanced protocols. And yeah, as soon as Thursday, you got guys like Chris Jones in the Thursday night game, as well as Josh Gordon, some injuries. Obviously, with these short weeks, there's always things to look at, but obviously COVID now, big deal. Uh, Baker Mayfield is t- tested positive. Uh, Stefanski is, is tested positive. They play on Saturday. So one thing that we've learned, I think, is the NFL is going to march on, take advantage of those 16-player practice squads, get them ready to go because uh, we're going to keep playing and short week or be damned, we're going to play. I don't know, Alex, what's your take? I just thought maybe they would delay this Raiders versus Browns game. I mean, maybe delay it by a couple of days. I mean, they could push it back. It's not a big deal. The NFL can do this. And if both teams agree, I mean, without having like Baker Mayfield there, Kevin Stefanski, why wouldn't they do this? I mean, the NFL is so stubborn. You have to be flexible in this pandemic life that we're living in. I mean, I guess if Kendall Hinton 
can be the quarterback for the Denver Broncos, and this was last year when he was the emergency quarterback, and that just that looked bad. I, I felt sorry for the Broncos that game. Well, the protocols have been in place, but again, you know, a couple weeks now removed from Thanksgiving where you have a lot of family gatherings and so forth, it was almost expected, but I think the other piece of it is, and even just as a country in the NFL, you know, being a microcosm of the country, they're not immune to all all the the flat, whatever you want to call it, they're still going to take heat, but from a player perspective, are we still wearing our masks? Are we still washing our hands? Are we doing all the things that we were told to do from the beginning? And I think things have relaxed some. I see it in everyday society. I'm sure you do too, Alex. And it's just, you hope everybody would be more responsible. Hopefully these red flags here are now, okay, hey, we've taken way too many liberties with this thing, this uh, variant, the Omicron variant. There's going to be more variants as life goes on. But like you said, they expanded the practice squads for that reason. They put in the extra protocols, the vaccines, everything is in place. So, and again, looking from the business perspective, with not a lot of college football being played, there's a lot of attention on those two games being played on Saturday, and they're playing. I don't, I don't care what happens, they're playing. Uh, now, in this case, I don't think Cleveland has to go that far. Hopefully, Case Keenum doesn't uh, test positive as far as he's concerned. Yeah, Baker still has a chance to play. You know, if he has a couple negative tests before the game within 24 hours of each other, I think he still has a shot. Yeah, they can move them, but I don't think they're going to. A couple quarterback injuries that were kind of a little bit under the radar. Uh, maybe the Lamar one got a little bit more... Uh, shine on it because he had to actually leave the game. Tyler Huntley, I mean, I mean, he played pretty well. I mean, I don't know what that says about the Ravens' chances moving forward, but you know, he played very well. But this is again another piece that the Ravens have to deal with, and they've dealt with it more than just about any other team. Tennessee's up there as well, but now their quarterback is injured, and he may or may not play, but uh, Coach Harbaugh, again, expects him to play this weekend. Do you think this might finally be the death knell of the Baltimore Ravens in 2021? I think so. I mean, look, the the Ravens have lost three of the last five games. I mean, they're still eight and five, with four games left on the schedule. But we all know Lamar Jackson. I mean, everything goes through Lamar Jackson for this team. I mean, he is their heart and soul. And if he's not going to be 100%, that means he's not going to be the Lamar Jackson that we all know. He's not going to be running as much. And if you keep Lamar Jackson in the pocket and he's going to be throwing more, that means he's going to be in trouble because... Since their week nine bye, Jackson has thrown six touchdowns and eight interceptions. And he's also been the third most sacked quarterback during that stretch as well. Two weeks ago, they lost Marlon Humphrey, their best defensive player. This time around, I mean, Lamar Jackson is banged up. Obviously, he's going to play. He's a gamer. You don't want Tyler Huntley to be starting again. I mean, the Ravens are in trouble. I mean, they haven't forced takeaways this season. The secondary is giving up big plays, and it's a weakness right now. And obviously so, because you don't have Marcus Peters, you don't have Humphrey. That's a problem. But 
everything starts and ends with Lamar Jackson and hopefully he's going to be able to get back to 100%. But I'm not sure we're going to see a healthy Lamar Jackson going forward. Yeah, Green Bay this week, then they're at Cincinnati. He's already beaten them once. Then they get the Rams and uh, the Steelers at home to close it out. All those teams, it seems like everybody's in the playoff chase, but at least each of those teams, maybe the Steelers by Week 18 may have been out of it, but still it's a rivalry game. Maybe Big Ben's last game is a Steeler or in the league per se. Uh, so that's going to be a tough one for them too. So the schedule doesn't help them either. As far as the Bills are concerned, it was mentioned a few times. I guess you, you may have noticed it during the game, but in the first quarter, they did not have a single carry by a running back in the first quarter. I don't know how many they had in the first half. I mean, they had some design runs for Josh, and you know they picked up good yardage, and eventually he did get nicked up on a run heading towards the sideline. You just see that whatever, 150 or $160 million running down the field, and you just have to hold your breath if you're the Buffalo organization but that's part of who he is so they let him do it as far as the bills are concerned it seems like they kind of found a little bit of a rhythm in the second half against tampa i don't know if that was more like tampa taking their foot off the gas or the bills finding something but they did finally start giving the ball to singletary a little bit and he did pretty well with it Maybe moving forward, they try that a little bit more, mix it up a little bit. Again, the stubbornness of some of these teams that love to throw it downfield and, and make huge plays, and it's it's all about the highlights. Again, and I'm going to keep saying it, and everybody's going to get sick of me saying it, but you've got to mix in some running. You've got to be able to run the ball some to keep these defenses honest, or you know, you're going to have those stretches where it, it looks ugly, a lot of three and outs, and, and your defense has to go right back on the field so then it doesn't help them either so again complimentary football give you all the cliches Alex I know you love them complimentary football take time off the clock take care of the ball (laughs) I don't know am I missing any well the Bills have lost three or four games and right now they're just they look like a team in disarray they're not hitting on any cylinders the only thing that they're relying on is Josh Allen and those wide receivers you mentioned that They didn't give the ball to a running back in the first quarter. Well, actually, they didn't hand the ball a single time to a running back in the first half against the Bucs. I mean, that's ridiculous, Lou. We all remember what the Patriots did against them in in those bad conditions. I mean, all they did was run the football. So it's almost like they're telling the Bills, look, you have to do the same. But they're not doing that. The Bills have been a pass-happy team the last two years. It worked last year, but it's not working this year. And the reason why it's not working is because their old line has dealt with a lot of injuries this season. And they haven't been as successful. Allen is throwing more picks as a result because he doesn't feel comfortable inside the pocket. They're getting those two deep looks. I think teams are playing more zone coverage against them instead of man. And they're not used to that. And they're getting beat up on the other side of the ball. You know, their defense, I always said, like, the Bills' defense is always going to rise. It's always going to stop people. Well, they lost Tredavious White, who is their best corner, maybe arguably even their, their best defensive player. And then we all remember what happened against the Colts, right? It started with the Colts. The Colts and Jonathan Taylor just ran wild on the Bills' defensive line. 
They just moved them out of the way. And it's almost like a blueprint for how to beat the Bills. They can't stop the run. And they're not only giving up like three or four yards. They're giving up some big plays on the ground. I also feel like looking up their stats. I mean, I'm becoming a stats guy on this show. But, I mean, the takeaways haven't been there this year. During the like the last two months of the season. They haven't been able to force those turnovers. You don't stop the run. You don't force turnovers. You can't protect Josh Allen. You're not committed to the run. How the hell are you going to win? To be honest with you, I picked the Bills to go to the AFC Championship game, but I'm not sure the Bills are going to get to the playoffs the way they're playing right now. So that's my two cents. Well, they've got Carolina, then at New England. I mean, obviously that's going to be a tough game. Atlanta, I don't know what to make of Atlanta. You know, I don't want to pick on them. I don't want to pick against them because you just never know what you're going to get. But, you know, here they are, still one of those teams in the hunt. And then they finish with the Jets. So it's not a terrible finishing four. They could certainly win all four. Obviously, they've got the horses to do it. It's just a matter of willingness to, again, with inexperienced or not so good offensive line, I think they do better moving forward than moving backwards. So, again, that. Playing that same record. Run the ball, man. Let Devin Singletary get some carries. Zach Moss. Breida, throw him in. Get the receivers involved. Some jet sweeps. Whatever. Just do something to get going. I mean, and this is all too familiar. Being a Chiefs honk, Chiefs fan. I heard all this, you know. Hey, they figured out how to play them. How are they starting to get out of it? They're starting to run the ball a little bit more. Running short, you know, shorter, quick passes to the outside to try to get force teams up. And then, you know, then you start throwing over the top uh we had a pretty big game monday night arizona and the rams and it was kind of a uh, maybe a litmus test maybe arizona's chance to prove it on the big stage the only game that night and and here we are it's a division game we kind of probably crushed the division and just put it to bed with a win the Rams come in with a short deck. They lose like three or four players that, you know, going into the game due to COVID, and the Rams shut them down. Arizona has not been good at home. I mean, the Packers came in with a short deck and put it on them. Heck, the Vikings had a chip shot field goal to beat them at home in one of their few wins there, and they missed it at the gun or they would have had another home loss. So I don't know what it is. I mean, they're, they're undefeated on the road. But at home, they have some issues. I mean, Kyler still isn't quite right, but good enough, make big enough plays to win. Uh, But again, got in the red zone and some issues, some turnovers, some coaching decisions that you got to shake your head a little bit about Cliff Kingsbury. You know, how they get to the end of the game and and don't, at very least, get a Hail Mary off. Not that they were going to score on it or that that's why they lost the game. But again, just little things like that where you're like, why aren't they ready? Why aren't they prepared for this? Kyler was the only one that had decided, hey, we're going to take the snap and let it fly. The offensive line stood up like he was going to spike it. But all those factors lead me to not trust them moving into and through the playoffs. I even though they'll be on the road and maybe they play better on the road, I just think on the big stage, they're still not quite sure who they are or Cliff's decisions aren't coming quick enough 
during the game. And as, as far as the Rams are concerned, OBJ getting a little bit more accustomed to seeing the ball. Stafford getting more chemistry with him, as well as Van Jefferson. Cooper Cup is like the constant this year. I mean, he might be Offensive Player of the Year uh, for what he's doing. Rams look good. Arizona didn't. And here we are. Do we overreact or is this is this a thing? Is Arizona going to be a problem? So you're telling me Arizona has to lose a couple of more games, surrender the division so they can get to the wild card and then be on the road every time, right? Oh, my God. Why can't they win at home? Because they don't have, like, diehard fans like some of the other teams that are going to be in the playoffs, all right? I mean, Arizona is lagging behind because they didn't have a good football team before that, Lou. I mean, let's be honest here. They didn't expect this. And all of a sudden, like, Arizona came out of nowhere. Look, Arizona has a good team, but they have been beaten by the Packers, by the Rams. Take my hat off to the Rams. I mean, you and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. They're just not running the ball, but they are now. Like, Sony Michelle is showing something. He might not be getting 100 yards, but he's getting, like, 20-plus carries. I think we have to give Sean McVay credit. You and I have, you know, criticized him, but now we got to give him credit that he is trying to stick up and, and trying to find that balance and trying to help Stafford, you know, who feels a lot more comfortable off of those play-action passes. So I give him credit on that. And Aaron Donald was Aaron Donald. I mean, from the first play of the game, Donald dominated. What, he had like three sacks, three tackles for loss, and a lot of tackles. I mean... Donald showed once again why he's probably going to walk away with Defensive Player of the Year again, right? He's huge. Uh, I think you're going to see, and it, it might be one of those things where, like, we, when we talked about the MVP, you know, there's fatigue. You know, every year that Jordan played in, in the NBA, he could have been the, the MVP. LeBron, through, you know, through his run, you know, can be MVP every time. Maybe they get tired of voting for Aaron Donald, just want some new blood. I mean, Micah Parsons, I'm sure, is gaining some momentum. You talked about T.J. Watt, but now he's injured. You know, Judon is way off the radar. I think just because he plays for the Patriots and there's not a lot of style there, more substance than style, so he may not really garner a lot of support for Defensive Player of the Year. So I think it might be between, you know, Micah Parsons and, uh, and Aaron Donald. Speaking of the most complete team, I think it's the Green Bay Packers right now, Lou. To be honest with you, I'm close to naming them the most complete team. If we focus on offensive and defensive performances, it's not even close. But special teams also play an integral part. And the Packers against the Bears, I don't know, they couldn't get it right on special teams. I mean, they gave up, what, a long punt return for a touchdown, two long kick returns, They also had a fumble on a muffed punt return, which was called back because of the penalty by the Bears. Mason Crosby is also having his worst season of his career. I mean, this guy has been Mr. Automatic for the last like four or five seasons. All of a sudden, he's 19 out of 28. So I just want to throw it out there. I'm close to naming the Packers the most complete team in the NFL, but they have to fix special teams. Well, especially in the playoffs. I mean, they can get away with it against, you know, obviously against the Bears, even though that was one of the wildest second quarters I've ever seen in a regular season game. But if you're going to end up having to go through 
Tampa Bay or Dallas or Arizona again. You know, those are the types of plays that can jump up and bite you during a playoff game. And then it's it's really can be really hard to recover. Those are the teams that uh, the top of the NFC, it, it's going to be a gauntlet. Anybody that gets through there, I would have to agree with you regarding the Packers. But again, you're never going to leave Tampa Bay out of that discussion just because they are the champs. And the ability is there. Hopefully, you know, as they're getting healthier, getting their guys back, and they are, and they're winning games. Now, again, it's not in a dominant fashion, but they're winning. Yeah, that's going to be a tough one. I don't know if there's really any dark horse team that's going to come out of there. There's so many teams that are that are on the cusp. Got to go with Green Bay and Tampa right now. There was a story out today, and this was just kind of off topic a little bit. We talked about Fox's involvement with the USFL. I just saw a story where NBC now is joining USFL coverage starting in April. So that's going to be a big boon as far as a league surviving. Having this much support financially from two major networks, I think we'll get it done. And then from a from a scouting perspective, from a an opportunity perspective for more players, I think that's just going to be nothing but but positive. And then playing in the in the spring when you know diehard football fans really you know are kind of jonesing for some action, I think that's going to be a good thing. USFL, baby, here we go. Okay, so let's go ahead to our player interview. He's a wide receiver of the North Carolina Central University Eagles in pride of Sugarland, Texas. Number 15, Ryan McDaniel. Ryan, welcome to Pros Like Us. Hey, thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you on. And uh, for some of our viewers that may not be aware, over the past weekend, the FCS Bowl down in Daytona Beach, Florida, where uh, FCS players have a chance to show their wares to scouts and pro personnel alike. Ryan was down there. Ryan, what were your takeaways from the whole experience, practices, game, whatever? Man, the whole thing was just a blessing to be able to be down there and compete against some of the top guys. It was a fun experience. Being down there, like I said, competing against the top guys across the country from all FCS programs and D1, no matter what level you're at, you're playing against the top players. So that was just a great experience. And then, you know, I got a new playbook a week before and just, you know, challenging myself to learn that was that was a fun challenge. So everything was great about it. I love being down there. Was there anything like technique wise or I mean, obviously, you know, being a wide receiver, there's a lot to that. Any tips or techniques that you picked up while you were down there? Yeah, I just watched, you know, obviously we're down there and we're practicing. So I get to see how everybody plays receiver. I get to see guys from all different body sizes and body types and how they ran their go ball versus how I ran my go ball, what releases they used and you know, did they stack somebody or so I just try to pick up something from everyone. That's no matter, you know, what level it is. Now, your teammate from NCCU, Quentin Chaplin, was the offensive MVP of the game. How happy was he? How happy were you for him? Man, I was ecstatic for Q. That's my guy. We rode down there together. Just everything that he's been through this last season, you know, just then to go down there and perform how he did I was ecstatic for him I know he was excited but I was real happy for him I'm sure you've never played in a football game 
where they had five quarters, right? I mean, that was something different, <laughs> I would assume. Yeah, that, that was definitely different. And let me ask you this. Have you ever been on a team that has lost by more than 50 points? Have you ever had that experience? I don't think I have. Yeah, well, we lost against A&T pretty bad, but I don't know if it was that bad, though. Did it just feel like the quarterbacks were throwing picks and fumbling the ball on, on every play, and you never even got a, a shot, a ball throwing your way? Nah, it didn't feel like that. You know, everybody was out there competing, doing the best that they could. And it was hard because, like you said, we were only down there for a couple of days, so we couldn't get a real rhythm with all the quarterbacks. So everybody was doing the best they could. I wasn't mad at anyone. I don't think anyone on our sideline was. We were just competing. It was still a great experience, though. From the film that I saw, Ryan, you stood out during the two days of practice out there on Friday and Saturday. Which NFL teams reached out to you? Who did you get a chance to talk to? So thank you. I ended up talking to the Colts, the Eagles, the Jags, the Bucks, and the Ravens. Okay, very cool. What stood out from those conversations with scouts? I mean, what did they share with you? Did they just ask you to fill out the questionnaire or did they dig deep? I filled out a couple questionnaires, but for the most part, most of them were just asking about, you know, my life and my parents and friends and other relationships. There weren't too many football questions per se. Well, the Jaguars need a wide receiver. Yeah, I'd love to play for any one of those teams. Who was the toughest cornerback that you faced during the practices, during those sessions at the FCS Bowl? I'd probably say Joshua Flowers. He was the cornerback on my team, number 20. He was from Winston-Salem. I played against him, and he was probably the most challenging just because, like me, he's a pretty tall, rangy dude, and you know he has good feet and everything. And he's obviously competitive, so it was a fun challenge going up against him. Well, it was nice to hear Joshua Flowers' name in there because he's been on this show before. Uh, he's been in the same position as you a few shows back, so that's a nice shout-out to him. Coming out of high school, tell us your story. How'd you wind up at Tulsa? Not a lot of people showed interest and. In I mean, a couple of schools here and there did show a little bit of interest. No one actually pulled the trigger. So I walked on at Tulsa and I ended up walking on there just because I thought it was a pretty good fit. And, you know, I took my parents up there and they agreed it was just a pretty good fit um, from football and academics and everything. So that's how I ended up at Tulsa. Why did you decide to leave after only one year? Well, because I did walk on and Tulsa is... A private school so it was pretty expensive to stay there i just had to make a financial decision for what i thought would be best for my family so you make your way to north carolina central university uh for those again that don't know it's an hbcu school was there significance to you in choosing it because it was an hbcu school while i was at tulsa my people they actually moved out to north carolina so i knew when I was going to transfer to a school, I was probably going to transfer to schools in North Carolina. And then I found Central. I just fell in love with it. It was a great HBCU. And then, you know, more videos and more research that I did, 
it just looked like a place that I wanted to be. And then when I got here, it was definitely a great family home experience. Like everybody welcomed me in. So it was just great. We've talked to a lot of kids or a lot of players from HBCU schools. Early recruiting, signing days is today. And Jackson State just got like the number two player in the country, five-star kid, cornerback wide receiver that I guess was all set to go to Florida State. And now he's going to play with Dion. Not sure Florida State's going to be real happy with Dion. But, <laughs> but, but just in your mind, Ryan, kids choosing HBCUs, what does that mean to you? What, what does that signify? Coming to an HBCU, especially as a black athlete, it just gives, you know, there's a lot of comfort here. But, you know, sometimes there's a stigma that there's not good football here at HBCUs. But that's not the case at all. There are a lot of great athletes, you know, that do come from HBCUs. You're going to get the same things. You know, things may not look as pretty, but we have the same hardworking people. We have the same workouts and we do everything that all the big schools do but you're also surrounded by your own people so it's just a great experience like i said you mentioned ncant earlier mm. as far as maybe just a game that didn't go so well you know team wise but you had a huge game that day you had like nine receptions 178 yards you had a touchdown would you say that was your best game of the year i definitely think so <laughs> Any other games where maybe the stat line wasn't quite there, but you feel that you just played better? I mean, if that makes sense. I don't know if I played better, but against Tennessee Tech, I had my final stat line was 10 for 80, but I caught a post ball at the end of the game and it ended up getting called back. But I think with that, it probably would have been like 11 for 120 and a touchdown. So I think that was also another good game that I played. Okay, so after that game, you mentioned Tennessee Tech. It seems like the stat line really nosedived throughout the, the end of the season. What came up at that point? What changed to make your production go down? I played my best games, I think, were when I was in the slot. But then I had a conversation with my receiver coach after the Tennessee Tech game. And he believed, and I'm guessing the rest of the coaches believed as well, that if I moved outside, it will also free up some more players to, you know, get more stats, more stats and more production and ultimately end up making our offense better. So I went outside for the second half of the season and, you know, my stats weren't there, but we won more games and the guys who stepped in, they stepped up big. You know, Devin Smith came in at a receiver. He played slot and he had a a tremendous second half of the season, and so did uh, Andrew Smith. Me stepping outside allowed, you know, more people to eat, which I'm fine with. So you're a team guy. I mean, you're willing to do whatever it takes to to help the team win. Definitely. NFL teams would love that answer. Obviously, you played in the MEAC. Who is the team that you had extra motivation for? That you always looked forward to the most, and, and why? There's actually a couple teams. So one ended up being Norfolk. And that was just because 2019, they came here and they beat us on homecoming. And it just left a bad taste in our mouth. So we knew, like, before the season, we had that game circled. We have to get Norfolk back because that was crazy. And then we ended up winning that game and having a great game. 
And then personally, I like to play against South Carolina State because uh, the Kobe Durant is one of the corners there, and he was supposed to be the best corner in the MEAC. And I just love going up against competition, so I, I love to play against him. How'd you do against him, I, I did okay. I didn't have as many opportunities as I wanted, but I think I did pretty well. We mentioned at the top, you're from Sugarland, Texas, right? Uh, yes. we, so we have to ask, how familiar are you with the Sugarland Express, Ken Hall? So what's funny is I really hadn't heard about him before, but then, you know, I went and I looked him up and I was just blown away that I hadn't heard about him because he set all kinds of records. And, you know, it's, I was looking, I think he has like 17 national records or something like that. He played in the 50s and most of those records still stand today. I even saw that he had like the most rushing yards just until Derrick Henry broke those. So just to hear that is just crazy. Like he must have been a great player. Yeah. I mean, just to put it into context, I mean, he did play in the early 50s. Uh, in 1953, he had over 4,000 yards rushing uh, in yeah, 12 games. He's still the only Texas running back that's ever done that in one year. Career scoring, like 899 points. One year, 395. 337 yards per game. The points were... He ends up going to Texas A&M when uh, Bear Bryant was there, and it didn't work out very well for him. But uh, anyway, there's movies, the whole thing. But I just wanted to ask you about him. I don't know if you, maybe, maybe your parents, maybe grandparents really, were talking about him or anything in town, if his name still came up. <laughs> my my parents are, aren't even from Texas, so it was just okay. Me. Gotcha. What would you say as a receiver is your best trait? I think I have, you know, pretty good size, pretty good speed, have good hands, but I think I'm pretty dependable and I'm pretty versatile. Like, obviously, I can go inside and outside, and then I think I pick up things very quickly, and I'm just pretty coachable. And then at the end of the day. I pride myself on being a very hard worker. Is that what you think sets you apart, being a hard worker? Yeah, along with the other uh, intangibles that I mentioned, I, I think I've been blessed with, you know, size and speed and all that stuff. And then to go on top of that, I do work extremely hard. And I'm always trying to learn something new to get an edge. Yeah, all of that combined, I think, just helps set me apart. What's your favorite route, Ryan? I think I have two. I like to run like a dig route just because there's so many ways that you can get into it. You can inside release it, outside release it. You can stem, you can post dig. I could go on forever about how many ways you can run a dig. And then also, I just love a go ball. Everybody loves to run downfield and catch a big go ball and score a touchdown. So both of those probably. Which one would you say you've been most successful at, like has had the most production for you? Uh. I've definitely had my best production doing intermediate routes, so probably the dig. Uh, who's your favorite NFL wide receiver? Who is your favorite NFL wideout right now and that you like to watch film on? Definitely right now is DeAndre Hopkins. You know, I, I followed him since he was uh, on the Texans, and I remember him way back, you know, even at Clemson. I just always liked his game. I try to model my game after it a little bit. And sometimes it's like he's it's not the prettiest. It's not always the flashy footwork, but he gets the job done. And it looks good when he does and he scores touchdowns and he has great hands. So definitely DeAndre Hopkins. 
All right. So since you watched him when you were younger, obviously Clemson had Sammy Watkins as well. Back in the day, did you like Nuke better than Sammy? They were both on the team. I, I think I was a bigger Sammy Watkins fan. But I did watch him too. But yeah, I definitely was a big Sammy Watkins fan. College careers behind you. Mm-hmm. Had your all-star game. Where's the journey go from here, Ryan? I just signed with my agent today, Rashida. Miss Rashida. Shout out to her for, you know, believing in me. Next, I have another bowl game, you know, the HBCU Legacy Bowl game. And that's in February. And then, you know, I have to get ready for my pro day. And hopefully, if I perform well enough, I can get an invite to the HBCU Combine, perform well at that, and then, you know, let the pieces fall where they may. Hopefully one day I'm getting that call. Just go as hard as I can once I get on the team. We'll see where it goes from there. All right. Well, we'll definitely be keeping an eye on things as you go here. want to thank you for, for coming on and, and sharing your story with us. I uh, get the opportunity now to plug your social media handles or anything else you want to plug. All right. So my Instagram is ryan.mac15. And my Twitter is Ryan underscore McDaniel 11. Yeah, I appreciate you guys for having me on the show. And I definitely appreciate it. All right, sir. Again, good luck. Congratulations. And uh, we'll see you down the road. Appreciate it. All right. We have reached the pick segment, the most exciting segment in Podcast Central. Here we go. 28 and 25 now for the season. Two and two last week. Again, I will die on the hill of the Washington football team for some reason. I'm not really sure why. But, uh, yeah, they didn't help me. Arizona, aforementioned with the Rams, I really thought they were going to prove their mettle, prove that they belonged at the top of the NFC, but not so much. The two winners were Denver in a blowout against Detroit, and then Tennessee got the shutout against Jacksonville, and that was just going into this week. We mentioned COVID. The Browns are one of those teams in the advanced protocols, but I I don't care. I'm pretty sure the Vegas, this is a U-Haul game for them. The U-Hauls are backed up. They just want to get the hell out of this season. And Case Keenum, if Baker can't go, can make this thing go well enough, and the Browns get that one. Who knows what the spread is going to be at this point. I'm seeing like one and a half or two. It's come down, but it could go back up. So keep an eye on that. My second game is going to be Buffalo. I think they did get things going the second half. I think maybe the run game is something that they're going to try to uh, explore here against Carolina. And Carolina, I'm not going to say that they're checked out, but I just think physically and the quarterback position is just a non-factor for them. So I'm going to take Buffalo minus 11. Denver, I'm going to come right back to them. This is a playoff game for them and the Bengals. The week before I went on them, they, they, they cost me. Now I'm going against them. Anyway, I like Denver at home. And then the ugly game of the week. Yes, here we go. The Pittsburgh Steelers as underdogs. This is just an automatic play. Whenever Pittsburgh's a home underdog, no matter how bad they are, you got to take them. They're plus two. 
Tennessee, obviously, has everything to play for. Everything is in front of them. Steelers are hanging on by a string. But I'm going to go with Pittsburgh and just say, hey, yeah, this is the ugly game. We're getting points at home. I've got all three of my local teams, uh, which doesn't happen very often. Cleveland, Buffalo, Pittsburgh. And uh, there you have it. Hopefully you'll be able to keep that winning streak and stay afloat uh, above 500. All right, my lock of the week. Instead of taking the point spread, I'll go with the over and under. And I'll take the over in the Seahawks versus the Rams game. It's 45 and a half. And I think this is going to be a slugfest, an offensive showdown between the Rams and Seattle. Russell against Matthew Stafford. I think that number will be covered. So my lock of the week is a little bit different. I'm taking the over. 45 and a half. Well, I've got Tyler Lockett as one of my fantasy wide receivers, so I'm looking for big things there. Playoffs this week, I'm pretty fired up. Uh, started the season in that league at 1-5, finished up at 8-6. and six. Things are going well there, and there was a Rashad Penny sighting. All right, folks, that is going to do it for this week. Please go ahead and subscribe. Thank you to our guests. And for Alex, I'm Lou on the way out. Peace!